Hey everyone, I am rebroadcasting this incredible episode with Deanna Denham because she is incredible, but also I recently found out that she is going through a major health challenge. She has been diagnosed with stage three ovarian cancer and I wanted to showcase her incredible story once again, but also to my incredible audience, all of you who have listened to her episode and enjoyed it or who haven't listened to her episode yet to please listen to the episode and get to know her. But also I implore you to please keep Deanna, her children, her husband, her family in your prayers. And if you can, please contribute to her GoFundMe, which is in the description of this episode. And I'll just say Deanna is incredible. When I first started this podcast, I pitched her and she was always on board. In fact, she gave me my very first podcast interview on her podcast, Loose Change, which you all should definitely listen to and check out the link to her podcast in the description of this episode. Deanna, I love you. And I know that everyone who has heard your story loves you and are holding you in our prayers and in our hearts. So without further ado, Deanna. I got amazing service in Hong Kong giving birth to my child with like extra medications for like strep B and an epidural and the whole nine. And I paid a fraction. I paid it. I paid it on my octopus card. It's a little card that we used to get on the train and to open our apartments and stuff because it has RFID. I paid for my hospital stay. So four days in the hospital on my octopus card. Hey everyone, welcome back to Flourish in the Foreign, the podcast that elevates and affirms the voices and the stories of Black women living and thriving abroad. Because you know what? We do this. I'm your host, Christine Job, and I am so happy that you are here. I just want to thank you all so, so much for your amazing, incredible support of the podcast and the launch of the podcast last week. Thank you. You guys really came through. So I appreciate that. Before I get to the next story, I do want to let you know all the ways you can support this podcast. So the Flourish in the Foreign podcast is written, hosted, and crafted, and lovingly edited by me, Christine. And this process is a labor of love, but labor nonetheless. And because podcasting is not free, it takes time, money, and resources to produce this show for you, which I lovingly do. And I am so excited to share more and more episodes with y'all. However, that is why I request support from you all. If you are digging the show, I would love for you to support the show. There are two ways for you to support the show. One is monetary, the other is non-monetary, and both are equally appreciated. The monetary way is through the site Patreon. You can find the podcast's Patreon page at p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash flourish foreign. So that is patreon.com slash flourish foreign, which allows you to contribute to the show monthly. 
So it works like this. On the first of the month, Patreon automatically takes out whatever you choose to donate, ranging from one euro to as many euros as you like. And based on the level of your support is the level of content that you receive from me. So that includes community access, that includes bonus episodes and behind the scene content, and even live Q&A sessions with some of our podcast guests. And if you choose to support the podcast through Patreon, I will love you forever. And also I will shout you out here on this podcast. So thank you, thank you, thank you in advance. Now for the non-monetary way to support the podcast, which is equally as important, please shout out the podcast on social media. You can tag the podcast across Instagram and Twitter and Facebook at Flourish Foreign. Let people know what you think about the podcast and why you like it. Please rate the show five stars on Apple Podcasts. Leave a review. Of course, subscribe to the podcast so that when new episodes come out, they just drop magically into your listening device. This next story is of Deanna, who is from Atlanta and moved her family to Hong Kong. Moving abroad comes with a whole host of issues, logistical issues, perhaps financial or professional, cultural. And those issues are somewhat magnified when you are moving not only yourself, but a husband and a small child. I'll let Deanna tell you how she managed it. Let's start at the very beginning. I was born in Albany, New York, so upstate New York. And then I moved to Atlanta when I was about 11. And so I did most of my middle school high school and college in Atlanta. So in high school, I was obsessed with anime, Japanese animation. And so I had always wanted to like visit Japan, live in Japan, do something like that. I took French for like seven years. So I was like, yeah, I'm going to live in Paris one day. And so like a, a general idea of maybe living outside of the U.S., was always a thing, but it didn't seem like a real tangible, you know, goal that I could reach one day. It didn't seem realistic for me because I just didn't, I didn't have anybody in my family that really traveled or lived abroad outside of like the Caribbean. My mom is Jamaican, my family's Jamaican. And so like, I'm, I'm first generation in the States, but like outside of just going back and forth from some island, we really didn't travel like that and no one really lived abroad like that. So it didn't seem like a real thing, if that makes sense. It was more like maybe one day I could study abroad if I'm lucky or something like that. It never seemed like a feasible thing. But then me and Dave got married and we put it on our bucket list that like, oh yeah, one of our goals should be living, you know, outside the country and making a big move. My husband has been working for a college in Atlanta and they have a campus in Hong Kong. He works in the admissions department. Because he works for this college and they have a campus in Hong Kong, we went to visit at one point. We stayed about 10 days and we took our daughter. She was 15 months at the time. And so we just went as a family with the school to go visit and we fell in love with the place. You know, it just, 
the transportation was really convenient and clean and the malls were really nice and the hotel was gorgeous. So we're like, oh yeah, one day we definitely have to live there. Yeah, we definitely have to do that. And so then maybe six months later, a position opened up there in the admissions department. And so he applied for it and it would be a promotion. So he applied for the promotion and yeah, he got it. And so we were like, oh my God, we're really doing this. We are moving to the other side of the world, basically. Our first visa was for two years. And so that was kind of the the time frame that we got. Like, it's only two years. It'll be okay. It's, you know, it's only two years. But we were really excited and really gung-ho about it. So while my family was supportive, I think they did count it kind of as a loss. So it was, it was, it was mixed. So like to the outside world, to like the social medias and, oh my God, my mom's going to kill me for saying this, but, um, like to her friends or whatever, she's really excited about, you know, her daughter that's going to go live in China, blah, blah, blah. It's a whole thing. But like to me and, you know, with the family, it was like, are you sure you want to do this? You know, I can't believe you're leaving. You know, Arya's so young. That's my daughter. Arya's so young. You know, she's not going to remember us. She's not going to know us. You know, you're going to be all alone. You don't even know anybody there, which is, these are all fair statements and really valid feelings. But it was just something that me and, you know, the family that I was building really wanted to do. They were supportive, but it was, it was really hard the company that my husband was working for, they gave us a moving package, but it wasn't very robust. It definitely, now upon like reflection, it definitely wasn't a very good expat package that like, that includes housing and moving fees and movers and blah, blah, blah. They kind of just gave us a flat rate and said, good luck. So Hong Kong, we knew from research is really small and compact. So you don't have as much area in your apartment. You definitely, you rarely will have a house unless you live on the outskirts. And so we were coming from a two-bedroom townhouse to down to like, I think, I think our first apartment actually was rather large for Hong Kong. So it was about 800 square feet or so for three bedrooms. But we it, just moving our stuff was going to be stupid expensive. And to be honest, it was mostly IKEA stuff anyway. It wasn't really worth it to like pack everything and hire movers to get it across the world. We pretty much tried to sell or give away everything that we had. I think the hardest part about that was I was working for a fashion company for kids. And so I had a crap ton of baby clothes and kids clothes for my daughter, stuff that she hadn't even worn yet, but that I just had like ready to go, you know, some brand new items because I would either get it as a discount or get it from a sample sale or whatever. And so I had so many beautiful clothes and I had to like sell them off at like a dollar a piece. And then an acquaintance from college was having a a child, a daughter, and her boyfriend had just left. And so like, I gave her a crap ton of things. I was like, hey, do you want this crib? Okay, this crib is yours. (laughs) You want a bookcase? Here's a bookcase. And here's some kids clothes. And here, just take everything. So it was the easiest thing to get rid of. But so yeah, we pretty much just either sold or gave away everything that we had. Then our visas got delayed. So then we were pretty much homeless and um, waiting for our visas to come through with no flights and no promises. So we were in my mom's apartment, which is three bedrooms with my little brother, with my daughter and my husband and my mom. Then finally they were ready. We just, we left, we got on the plane and it was awesome. After having a 
super nice flight. Her and her family land in Hong Kong. The night started off a little rocky. They had no idea that it would be indicative of how the next couple of days would go. We brought our daughter's super large American-sized stroller with us, and it had a car seat attachment. And we forgot the car seat attachment on like the conveyor belt for baggage claim. And once you go through security and stuff, you can't turn around. There's no turning around going back to baggage claim. And so we spent like half the night trying to get SIM cards for our cell phones, switch our cell phones over so that we can call the right numbers to figure out who in the airport do we talk to to get the stupid car seat thing. And then we were also staying in an Airbnb to start, or we were supposed to stay in an Airbnb to start, which we had already booked before. And finally, I got my phone to work. So we're trying to call the guy for the Airbnb. Nobody's answering because it's duh, the middle of the night. It's like 2 a.m. And so we find the address, give it to the taxi driver. He can't find the place. He drops us off with all of our luggage. Like we have huge things of luggage because, of course, we're moving. So we have these huge things of luggage, plus the baby, plus a giant stroller and car seat, trying to figure out how to get to this Airbnb. The taxi driver drops us off in the back of an alley and it's just stairs going up. And we're like, where are we even supposed to go? And so we are, we're trying to contact the, the host for Airbnb. There's no answer there. So we contact the Airbnb itself and they're like, Oh, well, can you just go to a cafe or something while we try to get a hold of them? And we're like, it's three in the morning. We're in Hong Kong. No, there's no cafes open. And they're like, Oh, shoot. Right. Okay. So they pay for us to stay at a hotel. And so, but on the way to the hotel, we actually ended up finding the place for the Airbnb, but then we couldn't find the stupid key. And it was some kind of like, mysterious maze thing to try to find the stupid key so we gave up on that ended up taking them on the hotel and the hotel was really really nice but then we couldn't find figure out how to turn the lights on it was just it was just one thing after another and this was our first night it was rough and then finally the concierge guy told us how to turn on the lights all you do is of course stick your key card in the slot and the lights come on which we hadn't really stayed in many hotels, so we didn't know. And so <laughs> we were in the dark for a while, literally. But because of the visa delays, my husband had to start work immediately on Monday, and we didn't land until Sunday. So the next day, he had to go to work, and I was alone with the baby. I had one friend from college that I knew lived in Hong Kong, and so she was kind of trying to help, but she had to work too. And so she told me about this, this Hong Kong mommies group on Facebook that everyone was a part of. At one point... In the first couple days, maybe the first or second day, I was in tears alone in the hotel room with Aria. And I'm just like, I don't know what to do. My daughter is super hyper. She wants to play because she's almost two. So she wants to play and I don't know what to do. And I feel like I don't even know how to be a mom right now. And so I put that on the Facebook group. So many women reached out to say, I'm sorry, you're going through this. You know, if you need a play date, let me know. We can meet up today. We can do this right now. And so I made some friends from there. And then this, this, um, music learning center reached out was hey we're actually located in your same area please come over right now no charge just you know let her run off her energy whatever and so i'm also terrible direction so i got lost for like an hour the place was maybe 15 minutes away walking maybe 10 now that i know where i am but i got lost for like an hour trying to find it and when i finally got there you know they gave us snacks and just grown-ups to talk to aria got to play in the play place it was amazing and like it was just like such a relief 
to talk to other people. And like the owner was like super sweet and had like the most beautiful voice. And so she was singing like Frozen to my daughter. And it was just like, oh my God. It just made it bearable. But yeah, that first few days, it was rough. We had no place to live. We were still living out of a hotel. It was hectic and crazy and it was a lot. It was a lot. But actually, I don't have a butt there. No, it was just a lot, period. Deanna is a fellow Black woman podcaster. Her podcast is called Loose Change. The second episode of her podcast, Carrying the Burden of My Race, really caught my attention. It was, one, a provocative title. But also, the substance of it was actually quite painfully relatable. I was in Vietnam, and I had gotten a weird DM from my old French teacher in Atlanta about my hashtags that I use, because I use Black Girl Magic, Black Girls Travel Too, Black and Abroad, you know, all the Black Girl hashtags, because representation matters. And like a lot, like your podcast, I want to show what we are capable of. And it's easier to believe you could be there if you see it. And so, of course, I use these hashtags. Now, this Italian white woman did not agree <laughs> with this notion and decided to tell me all about it, about how she didn't agree. And she thought I was so much better than that and so much more intelligent than that and felt that I should be wanting to inspire all girls or all people rather than just black people. And she just didn't see the necessity of blah, blah, blah. This was on mother freaking Christmas, by the way, while I'm on vacation with my family in Vietnam. And I'm just like, this woman had the audacity to just put herself out there like that. Like she felt so free and it made me so angry for so long, like days and days I went on thinking about this. And it made me reflect on just why didn't I just tell her about herself? Because like in my responses, I was really courteous. You know, I was trying to be very gracious and understanding and come with facts and educate her. And then I was trying to think, why did I feel the need to educate this stupid, ignorant lady who thought she had a right to me because I was in her French class for a few years? Like, what even is that? And it just... And then I had thought about a meetup that we had had with the other black women where one of the women that was there said that no matter where she goes, she carries herself a certain way because she knows that she is the representation of all black women. So if this is their first experience with a black woman, she wants to make sure that they have the right experience of who we are. And there's just such a heavy burden with that to always have to be a certain way because of how people will perceive us. And I talked about that in therapy because it was just like, I felt so crushed by it, like by that heavy burden. I don't, I'm not a perfect person. I make so many mistakes and I put so much pressure on myself to be like the best version of myself possible. And I was so worried that I'm going to make a bad impression on black people, a bad impression on black women, a bad impression on black moms. And like, because especially when you're like, you're a multi-intersectional person, you're representing a lot of different people. And it's just, that's too much. It's too much. And I don't want to do that anymore. And so like, I had started sharing actively with white people, especially how that feels and just being more open about like, 
Like if some person just asked me, you know, at work on Tuesdays, we have like a, a morning meeting with the entire staff and some parts they just tell you to like chat with the person next to you, find out how their weekend was going. And I think that had just happened to me. And so I had made a point to tell the white woman that I was talking with of how that made me feel of trying to carry this burden of my race on my shoulders. And there was something so freeing and telling a white person that that's how other white people make me feel <laughs> and how other black women can make me feel. We are not a monolith. We are not all the same. And how I am now does not mean that all black women are like me or how I am now is not an exception to how black people are. And I feel like that's a very unique stress to people of color, especially to women of color who tend to get the short end of the stick in kind of many, many, many respects. So yeah, so that episode came from that and it was, it was very therapeutic to just get it out. And then I, after therapy, actually during therapy, my therapist told me to block the woman on Facebook, which I did. No, I blocked her on Instagram. I kept her on Facebook so she can see what she's missing, but she can't respond to anything, which is petty, but also I need that. And I keep using my hashtags and I keep, you know, speaking from a perspective of me as a black woman, as a black mom, as a black podcaster, as a black designer, as a black woman living in another country. I think what's been really, really motivating though, is that I've had non-black people like white and Chinese people say, oh, I listened to this episode and it was just really inspiring to me and I really just saw myself in it. And I'm like, that is so good for you. I am so glad for you. It wasn't for you. And I don't have to tell them that it wasn't for you, but I'm glad that they don't feel because I mentioned specifically black people, me as a black person, I felt like this because I'm black and this is what that means for me, blah, 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 that they couldn't get something from that. I want my audience to be other black women, other black girls, other black people. And if another person, another culture can glean something from that too, that's fantastic. But my priority right now is blackness. And there's no shame in that. Finding community is essential to feeling comfortable and feeling at home in a place. Discovering if there are other black people in a city is heartwarming or at least somewhat reassuring at times. But what's fascinating is that Moving abroad will put you into social circles with maybe Black people that you would have never have considered before. The only common denominator being that you both are expats in the same city. There is a Facebook group called Sisters of Hong Kong, and that's all Black women um, from all over the world. And it's, it's a few hundred people. And it's really supportive. And so once a month, we would meet up together, all the black women and just have dinner and talk and, and wine and whatever. It was really great to see the different types of black people that were there. And then also the different classes of black people, because like there were women at that group that were big business owners in Hong Kong that worked for the consulate, worked for the government. Some were working in finance. There were just so many different types of Black women, especially in those groups, that it was just like, it was just, it was just amazing to see. And so it makes you feel closer in proximity to them, if that makes sense. And so here we are all at the same dinner table, you know, discussing our lives or whatever and just chatting it up or at a Christmas party and just chatting it up. And it's like, it makes you feel like you're just one step away from that, if that makes sense. Like you're just like 
one step away from greatness or one step away from becoming whoever you want to be. It kind of just made it feel like there were definitely more possibilities for me as a Black woman here in Hong Kong. And I kind of leaned into that. Access to hair care and skin care is vital. Deciding if you are going to be shipping in your most beloved products, bringing your current favorites in an extra piece of luggage, or trying out the local products are crucial decisions because ain't nobody got time to look ashy or crazy in any streets. Hair care products is definitely an issue. It's when we first got here, Amazon really did not ship here that often, which was just ridiculous. Before the virus hit, they opened it up a lot more. And so a lot of, a lot more vendors actually started shipping here. So it was a bit more possible. Plus Sephora came. So that opened the door to a lot of things. But before that, man, I had to get care packages from the States. I also, before I came, one of the boxes I actually did ship here was just full of hair care products. Duplicates and triplicates and quadruplicates of the same product so that me and my daughter wouldn't run out. I have a lot of hair and I have 4C curls and my daughter has a lot of hair and she has 4C curls. And so it's serious. Plus the humidity here is off the charts. So like, I can't even do a twist out here because my hair curls up in, I think less than an hour if I'm outside, if that. Like by the time I can get to the bus stop, my hair is gone. I also found a lady that braids hair here. She comes to my house, Victoria, and she's amazing. And the price is comparable to the States. It's one of those things you don't realize how much you need it until you have someone else's hands in your head again. And they're parting it. They're greasing your scalp. They're putting down gel. You know, they're they're cornrowing it. Like, it's... I didn't realize how much I missed that until I had her hands in my hair. So now she comes over maybe every month to braid my hair. In some parts of the world, having a child is not only a glorious event, but an expensive one as well. Deanna and her husband had had their first child in Atlanta and their second child in Hong Kong. And although the experiences were relatively similar and the results of happy, healthy children were the same, the cost was drastically different. I got pregnant the first time when I was 24, 3, 23, right after I got married. We ended up getting pregnant, which not part of the plan. So yeah, we got pregnant. And we were like, well, I guess we're just going to be parents now. My pregnancy with Aria was sucky. It was awful. I was, I had morning sickness for maybe seven months. So starting from like the moment I found out I was pregnant for about seven months straight, I had morning sickness throwing up all over the place. And I, meanwhile, losing weight like crazy. And so I can't like, <laughs> basically my body's not holding her up very well. And so, you know, I'm still going to work all every day. I'm still working full time. I had a lot of support from friends and family. And I gave birth at Northside Hospital in Atlanta. And it's like, it's called like the baby factory because it's the most beautiful facilities to give birth in. And it's like, you get your own private room. It's huge. My husband was there the whole time. I got my epidural, but I was in labor for like 26 hours, which again, not ideal, but yeah, it was that was awful. And then I went home and, you know, as most mothers will do but not tell you about, I was home crying in the middle of the night because I can't breastfeed properly and my daughter won't go to sleep because she's hungry or she's sleeping too much because she's hungry. It was really, really rough. And that was with having like a support system around me. And then it cost me like 
eight grand with insurance because America. So like even having corporate health insurance, it still costs us about $8,000 to give birth to Aria. And then my second child, Malia, I had her in Hong Kong. Same wave of morning sickness. Fantastic. But this time I had it for all nine months, which is just just wonderful. So with Malia, you know, for transportation, we don't have a car here. Everything we do is usually public transportation or we're walking or something. So it was still a lot of walking, which was odd for me because, you know, I'm getting bigger and I'm nauseous, but I have to walk and take buses everywhere. So I, I started fainting everywhere. I fainted on the way home from work on a bus, I think twice. I fainted on the train twice. I fainted at work once. I fainted at home a few times. I think the first time I fainted at work, my coworkers like, no, you have to go to the hospital. And I'm like, well, I don't want to go to the hospital. Like, I don't know I can if I can afford the hospital because I had never been to the hospital before. You know, like, because even in the States, I would think I can't afford the ambulance ride. It's a $500 taxi ride. Why would I do that? But here it's like, why would you not go? Of course you go to the hospital. Why would you not? And like the doctors would look at me and they'd be, you're staying overnight, right? Like, why would you leave? It's going to cost you nothing. And so we look at the bill when we're done, you know, after taking the doctor's advice and we look at the bill and it's, it's a few hundred Hong Kong dollars and you're like, oh, that's it. It's nothing. It's my lunch money for the week. If that, you know, it's, it's one meal. My prenatal care was great. I was with some really great midwives and it was covered by my insurance, I think like 80%, which was great. And then for the birth, I ended up going public because we have a free public healthcare system here as long as you have a Hong Kong ID. So I was able to do the public system and it's based on your location. So I didn't get to choose my hospital per se, but um, so I just went to the closest one that had um, that had the facilities for it. And so fortunately, because I'm fainting and having a terrible pregnancy already, I am I was in the hospital maybe two or three times before I actually gave birth. So I got to kind of see what the hospital was going to be like anyway. Because it's public, you're in the same room with maybe five, like five people on each row. So like 10 other people in each room. And it's, it's sectioned off by curtains. And so there's, you know, you hear other women moaning and groaning, but also it's the age of technology. So everyone else like headphones, you're enjoying your own media or reading books or doing whatever. So the hospital was pretty nice. The food was gross, but it's hospital food. And my midwives weren't allowed to be there because they didn't have, you know, they don't have privileges at the public hospitals, but they, they had a class about giving birth at, in a public hospital, which was fantastic. Literally a room full of nurses and one doctor who were super sweet, spoke English really well. So that was reassuring because I'm just like, I don't know how to explain to you in Cantonese that I'm miserable right now, but so yeah, they were just like super supportive. So Malia came out and she was the exact same weight as Aria, a little shorter. And then I stayed in the hospital for like three days. They gave me postnatal classes, like how to breastfeed again and doing physical therapy, like pelvic floor exercises and stretching and stuff like that. They had free classes for that um, available. And so I took a few of those and some of them were in the middle of the night, which is great because, you know, you try to sleep in the baby sleeps, but the baby sleeps whenever they feel like it. And so they like run these classes in the middle of the night sometimes, which is just great because there are moms that are awake and we're doing it anyway. I got amazing service in Hong Kong giving birth to my child with like extra medications for like strep B and an epidural 
and the whole nine and I paid a fraction. I paid it I paid it on my octopus card. It's like a little card that we used to get on the train and to open our apartments and stuff because it has RFID. I paid for my hospital stay. So four days in the hospital on my octopus card. And they also gave me like vitamins and stuff to take home with me, all included. And so it really just doesn't make sense to me why the States has to cost so much when it's like everywhere else has the same equipment and is doing it and it's subsidized by the government and it's, you know, it's covered and you pay like a menial fee. It it made me realize that like in the States, you know, we really boast about our high level of service and, you know, we're number one in this and this and this, and that's why it costs so much and it has to cost this much and blah, blah, blah. It was just like a really eye-opening experience of being a bit more disenchanted with the States. A popular reason for people to move abroad is for cost of living. You can possibly have a better cost of living in your new home than your hometown. Perhaps the cost of transport or travel is significantly cheaper, or perhaps housing is significantly cheaper. That is not the case in Hong Kong. Hong Kong is so expensive for real estate. <laughs> I think like New York prices and New York size. Our first flat was maybe 800 square feet, which is really large for Hong Kong, especially for our area that we were in. And we had we worked with a real estate agent for renting. That's what everyone does. When you're renting, you work with an agent. Their fees are 50% of whatever the rent was that you agreed upon. And then your landlords will also be working with a separate real estate agent between the two agents. They figure out all the details and stuff. And so our real estate agent found us some really great flats that first or second week that we got to Hong Kong. She showed us a bunch of places based on where David was going to be working, access to public transportation. So buses, trains, mini buses, great stuff. Just the size that she got us was really big. So for 800 square feet, three bedrooms, two full bathrooms, which also having a full bathroom here, like rarity, but it's amazing. We paid about $3,000 a month, 3,000 US dollars a month. I had just switched jobs. I just found out I was pregnant. We were trying to get Aria into school and then our landlord raised our rent by $1,000. So we had to find a new place to live which we ended up doing. But with that, that was even that was a blessing because the new place we found, the area is a lot quieter. The school's options were much better. And our flat's a little smaller. It's around 600 something square feet now, but it costs us 2,400 a month. So we save quite a bit, but still three bedrooms, two baths. So it's a good place. Deanna and her family have been living in Hong Kong for the past four years. So I asked her, how was her Chinese? In Hong Kong, they speak Cantonese. In China, mainland China, they speak Mandarin. For the most part, though, everybody here speaks Cantonese and English and then some Mandarin, which is a big contrast from the States because on a regular, most people here are bilingual. In the States, you're lucky if you speak English that well. So that was hard to kind of grapple with. So me and my husband tried to take Cantonese lessons. I know my numbers I know how to ask the bus to stop. I know how to say turn left and turn right, but I don't know which one is which. I just know both terms. And I know how to order a mango juice. And that's that's the, probably the extent of my Cantonese. Oh, I know how to say excuse me and thank you, but only because those are very similar words. My daughter is learning Mandarin in school, and so her Mandarin's pretty decent. And then I have coworkers that love my daughter, and so they... 
help her with her Mandarin homework or just talk to her in Mandarin when we get together so that she's keeping up with the language. And then my youngest daughter, Malia, she is learning Tagalog, which is the Filipino language, because my helper is Filipino. And because Malia is a baby, it's going to do really amazing things for her to learn two languages at once you know, at this age. And then when she starts school, she'll learn Mandarin too. And so Malia will probably be trilingual by the time this is all said and done. But um, for the most part, people speak English here. So it's relatively easy to get around. But when I started, oh man, it was rough. Like I would have to have friends record something on WhatsApp and send it to me so that I could play it for whoever I was trying to talk to. Or I would get on Google Translate and hope for the best. But also now because I, I know... um like my numbers and whatnot, if I'm in meetings and then all of a sudden they start speaking Cantonese, like I know my days of the week was, are also based off numbers. So I can like use context clues to kind of get a sense of what they're saying. Cause it is a little bit rude low key to kind of speak. If you're in a meeting to speak languages that not everybody understands. And they do that if they want to kind of keep me out of the conversation. And it's not really with malice or anything. It's more like, I just need, like, I need to get something past you real quick. So it is fun to like follow up on their question in English and be like, oh no, I think that date is good. And they're like, oh, you speak Cantonese? I'm like, no, not really. Or I'll just like, yeah, a little bit, you know, just a little bit here and there. So that actually happened recently. So that was, that's been funny. Knowing some Cantonese is, is helpful, definitely, but it's not a requirement. I always ask my guests at which point they felt settled in a new country, in a new city. At what point it felt almost like home or just comfortably familiar? I don't think I really felt settled until the second year. And I had heard that a lot from people moving to Hong Kong because Hong Kong's a really transient city. People come, people go a lot. And I had heard from a lot of people that you're not going to feel settled or like you belong here until two years. Like the loneliness won't pass until two years in. And I'm like, oh, <laughs> no, what? That's crazy. Two years is a really long time. And sure enough, yeah, two years it took me to really get my bearings, feel like I'm a part of something, make really good friends. And I'm a like really extroverted social person. So that loneliness hit really, really hard. And it was hard to talk about with my family because, you know, I had been so gung-ho about coming, even though I didn't know what I was in for. But it was just like, I feel so alone here. How do I tell them, like, I'm not doing well? And, like, the first three months, I had no job. And because of our student loans, because <laughs> America, we could not afford to live on one income. Even though Dave was making more money here, I needed to get a job. And I was doing freelance graphic design for like three months and applying everywhere. But also they don't really do daycare here. They Everyone has a nanny. Like it's called a, a domestic helper that lives with you. And so I couldn't interview for jobs because I had no one to care for my child. And I couldn't really hire a nanny or anything because I couldn't afford one because I have no job. And I need to get a job to do that. So it was it was a really stressful time and so we finally got a helper maybe after the first month or two and she's amazing she's she still lives with us her name is mary and so she would watch start to watch aria while i would try to go for job interviews but no one was hiring me because i was very american 
but to the point where like there were certain things like how to set up their resume for here, how to format it, even what size it needs to be or what to say was it was foreign to me. No pun intended, but it was it was foreign to me. I didn't know how if and not for lack of trying. And so I just wasn't getting job offers. I was getting a bunch of freelance stuff, but not a lot of job offers. And so I, there was a point where my husband was like, look, either we find a job for you in the next month or we have to probably go back home because we can't afford it. And so at that point, I was also freelancing for that music learning center that I had visited the first week that we had gotten there. Um, just doing some marketing stuff. And I was like, hey, do you guys have a permanent position open or anything? Are you hiring? And the the owner was like, actually, yeah, we're opening a new center and we're looking for someone to do marketing. And so I was like, oh, shoot. Yeah, me right there. And so that week I interviewed with them just to have a conversation of what that would look like. And they hired me. And then I negotiated the salary. And yeah, and I, I just, I prayed on it and I prayed on it and I prayed on it. And I was like, look, God, I can't have a low salary here because, well, relatively low. I just knew how much we needed to survive. And so that's what I prayed on and asked for. And when I went into the interview, that's how much I asked for to be paid. And they were like, no, we can't afford that. So no. Then I told them like, okay, well, just come up with some kind of creative compensation. And, you know, I'm sure you guys can figure it out. And by lunchtime, they're like, okay, never mind. Yeah, we'll just give you that salary. It's fine. So I ended up, we had a beautiful apartment that, you know, we could just barely afford. We had an amazing helper to live with us and take care of our daughter. And then I got a job that I really liked. And because it was a learning center, my daughter could also go to work with me on some days. And she got to take free classes there. So it really just, for all those things that really worked out for us, I still didn't quite feel settled there until maybe two years in. I think the job was really hard and just wasn't what I thought it was going to be. I just didn't know how to like keep up with friendships very well because, you know, it's, it's culturally, it's different. Right. And so like, I think back home, all my friends were mostly from college. And so we had kind of our routine. You go over, you just hang out or whatever, but here, like the flats are all really small. And so people don't really hang out at the house like that. Like not really. And, you know, they're going out to bars or clubs or whatever. And I just, that wasn't where I was at. And so I just didn't know how to maintain friendships really, or how to like ask someone to go out or whatever. And so I was just, I was lonely for the first two years. I think getting new friends, leaving that old job for something different, still doing design, making new friends. And then I think after I had my second kid, that's, I think that's when I really started to feel like, okay this is my home now. Like, this is where we live. And I think that's also around the time when our visa was running out and we were talking about, do we reapply? Do we want to stay? Do we want to renew our visas? My daughter started school. And so I had mom friends that were around her age and like started going to birthday parties and stuff for them. I felt like part, I think, yeah, I think when I felt part of community, that's when I really started to feel like, okay, this is where I, where we should live. This is home now. And I think the same for my husband too. Like when he started getting into community with the dads and he found other black dads in Hong Kong, it, it, I think something really shifted for both of us kind of simultaneously. We're like, yeah, this is, this is our home now. I mean, plus I got pregnant and it was like, oh, well, we can't move on pregnant because I'm not doing that. So yeah, I think that's when it all just kind of clicked in place. I really felt like I belonged. It was great. So definitely before Corona hit, 
we were definitely kind of settled with being here for at least seven years so that we can get permanent residency. And that way we wouldn't need a visa for jobs here if we stay for seven years and then apply. And since we're already at four, that doesn't seem so far off. I would love to stay in Hong Kong. But then the virus hit and then we considered, do we need to move back to the States? Because it was looking like things might get bad here because we are attached to China. But even the virus, we got affected, but we barely hit over a thousand cases even after our big spike. And we've had it since January. And so like, and I, I mean, part of that's because everyone wears masks here. It's part of that's because we do have a free healthcare system. So you can get a test if you really need a test. And with the WhatsApp groups, everybody knows who's got it and who doesn't. And if it's in the building where you're living and if you're supposed to be in quarantine, they give you a bracelet to wear. So culturally, people will shame you if you are you have a quarantine bracelet on. I mean, they'll shame you if you don't wear a mask. It's it's that bad. But especially if you're supposed to be in quarantine because you have the virus, people will chase you down. So all that to say, we had considered for a second moving back if we had to move back. But really, we don't want to. Like, we even got an offer from my husband's job to move back. But we turned it down because we we like being here. We like the people that we found here. I like my job. You know, I like the opportunities we have. And I started a podcast here and, you know, my, my job is helping me with that, like giving me a microphone to use. And, you know, my daughter's going to an international school where she's learning another language from the age of five, which is amazing for her. And, you know, and now even with being working from home and having to homeschooling, she has online classes right now and it's full curriculum every single day and it's tedious and it's so much freaking work but i am also really grateful that her teacher is available all day checking the work working with the students having meetups for the kids so they all can see each other and i just i just see so much potential for our lives here and i've just grown so much in the four years that i've been here that i just i can't really picture myself being back in the states right now i don't picture those opportunities being the same you know, on top of, I mean, plus I have a helper here, so I don't actually clean ever anymore. <laughs> and honestly, that might have been the cause of my divorce if if we had stayed in the States. So, I mean, even my marriage is flourishing because of Hong Kong. And I just, I'm not ready to let that go. There's so many more possibilities for me here and for my family to really grow and thrive. There's less holding us back in Asia than there is in the States. And it just, it seems strange and counterintuitive, but that's just kind of how we feel. A topic that is not as popular when talking about moving abroad is taxes. Yes, taxes. They follow you everywhere, especially if you're an American. Most people do not consider tax implications, perhaps their pensions, or other bureaucratic systems before they move abroad and it can be a little overwhelming or it can be a pleasant surprise there are a lot of benefits to living here like our taxes are insanely low there's no income tax like there's no tax that comes straight out of your paycheck so every month when you get your paycheck it is that rate whatever it is minus your pension that's what you get paid every month so we see we see all of our money and then our pension plans 
it's also dead simple. They kind of set it up for you and they have you like pick a few investments or some something like that, you know. The stuff that I, I still don't know. But I asked my HR director and I asked some coworkers and he helped me figure that out. And so then every month I just get a text message that literally says how much is in my pension. For the taxes, because we have two kids now, we don't really pay have to pay taxes right now. So we just have to file them. And so to file your taxes here, your job fills out a section, it's a page, and then you fill out one or two pages and then you send all of that to the IRD. And then they send you a letter that says, this is how much you owe, or this is your refund. And the refund comes immediately with a check. So in that letter, you're either getting a check or you're getting a bill. But it's like, it's so stupid simple. It's it's ridiculous. Like, I remember filling out U.S. taxes, and I have to have an accountant. Like, the, you, there's really no way around it unless you're going to, like, an, like an HR block or whatever. But you have to have someone do your taxes for you. And here, that's not a thing. Like, you just, you quickly do it. And it's, it's really low. Sometimes they do provisional taxes, which means you're paying on what you may owe for the next year. You're paying that in advance. It happened to us, I think, twice. And then, yeah, you pay that in two installments and then you're good. And then even that, in that, we paid a provisional tax, but we had Malia. And so we had two kids. And so we got to resubmit our taxes, which was literally just calling them saying, hey, I had a baby. And they're like, okay. Thank you for letting us know. We'll send you a letter with an update. And then we got all our tax money back. So it was, it again, it makes me a little bit more disenchanted with the states because we're paying all this money with taxes. It's super complicated. And then it goes to what? Not a free healthcare system. So it's like, what? what is even the point? Safety is crucial no matter where you live. But how do you deal with political unrest? Especially if you did not necessarily expect there to be political unrest. During the Hong Kong protests, um, when they were protesting the extradition bill um, to China, I was coming back from a going away party one night and we had already seen on Facebook and in the news that protests were starting to break out again. And this, at this point, it had kind of become a weekly thing, especially on the weekends. But we were coming back from this party and we had heard things were getting kind of bad. And even when I had first gotten to the party, I was trying to exit one way out of the train station and people were running in saying, don't come out that way. Don't go out that way. They just shot tear gas. Cool. That's what tonight's going to be. Awesome. And so I just went out a different way. Google mapped how to get to the place and it was fine. And so we stayed for a couple hours and then on our, on our way home, the area that we were in was dead silent. Zombie apocalypse silent. It was weird. It was me and a, f- a friend and his wife, and we were trying to, <clears throat> we were trying to find, you know, the closest MTR because by that point, our closest train station had closed, and so we were trying to find the next closest. And so we're walking, and at some, at one point, we saw people running, and we're black, so run the direction that people are running because obvi. But um, it was by that time when we went to turn around, it was too late, and we got hit with tear gas. And oh my God, tear gas, it like rips through your eyes. It rips through your nose, your esophagus. It burns from like every orifice in your body. And it's, it's terrible stuff. It is, is some serious stuff and it's spicy, but not in a good way. Like it's, it's bad. And so we got hit with tear gas and my friend's wife got hit with it really bad. It was in her eyes. 
and a protester had stopped had seen us walking away and coughing and stuff and she had stopped said do you guys need help and she gave us like eye wash and mask to wear and goggles and you know she was trying to point us in the direction that we can get home she's like where are you guys trying to go to okay you can't go this way because they're coming they're going to come down next from this way so you know take a left here go this way go that way blah 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 and that's consistently that night we saw protesters trying to help civilians and other protesters to get home and to you know get to safety so we ended up walking maybe six stations deep to get to a train that was working before i think they ultimately shut that one down too so we just made it out and then they like started imposing an unofficial curfew because everyone takes the train and so they started closing the trains earlier so effectively they had a, a curfew instituted for the city which was also crazy. Outside of the protest, Hong Kong is a really safe place. I have gone out without my husband to bachelorette parties, just clubbing or whatever. I don't go out often, but I am very social. So like I go to clubs or whatever. Everyone's outside. No one's really there to bother you or anything. I got really, really drunk at a bachelorette party in January and I left my credit card at a bar. I didn't realize it for a week because I never use that credit card. And I went back to that bar a week later and I asked for my, see if anybody had it. And they were like, oh, give us a second. And so they pull out this giant book of credit cards. I kid you not, a binder full of credit cards and start swiping through the pages. Like, what's your name? Okay, what kind of card is it? And then they had my credit card just sitting there. Never used, nothing, no problem at all. I've dropped my wallet because I'm clumsy after tapping into the train and someone like yells at me to turn around to pick it up. And that's just... Yeah, that's just kind of the way it is here normally. Under normal circumstances, that's that's usually how it goes here. It feels pretty safe. And then a lot of walking around is through alleys, dark alleys and stuff, which in the States, I would never do, ever. But to get to certain places, you have to cut through alleys and stuff, and that's just normal. I asked Deanna about her personal definition of wellness, and how that had been influenced by her living abroad. I think for me, I didn't know or I didn't really appreciate that I could change, that my thoughts could change, my self-talk could change. I could be a different person. And then I took a class over the summer. It was taught by a friend of mine, but it was called how to help a hurting friend. Um, and it was just, it was a, it was literally a class about caring. I had already been in therapy for, I think at least a year because I had postpartum depression after my second pregnancy, but I wasn't really making progress in other areas. At least I didn't feel that way. But then I took this caring class and I saw for the first time how I could change the way I spoke to other people. From there, I started meeting with an executive coach, but my first session with him, he asked me why I wanted to get into coaching. Like, why did I need coaching and what did I want to accomplish? And he just let me talk for, I think, maybe 10 minutes of just me talking. And he's taking notes. And then he's like, can I just reflect back to you what you said? And he was like, so what I gathered from this is you don't think you're good at anything, like at all, not your job, not motherhood, nothing. You don't think you're good. At anything and I'm like okay maybe <laughs> I don't usually put that in my face but sure maybe that is how I feel about myself and I just had never had anybody reflect that back to me 
to the point where I could actually grapple with it. But he would give me like homework assignments and things that I had to do in between our sessions. And he was like, look, do not call me for another session until you complete this assignment that I've given you. One of the assignments was I had to talk to my boss about where I was at and the kind of feedback that I need from her and what I need from her as my line manager, which super awkward conversation. And I also had to apologize to her for how I perceive her and how I put my bad history with other bosses onto her. And like, she doesn't know this about that I've done this, but I had to like apologize to her about it. And it was crazy and stupid and hard and so awkward, but it was so good for our relationship. It was crazy good. Even now I'm getting like a little bit emotional about thinking about it because like I didn't realize that my struggle with leadership was holding me back from becoming like a leader myself. And I also didn't realize that it was something that I actively needed to change. I just thought like, you know, a a healthy mistrust of all leadership is a good way to go about your life. Apparently that is not the case. And so like when I look at like self-care, I look at doing that self-reflection. I I look at learning more about myself and how I respond to things, how I react to things. Even taking an hour away from my job each week to go to therapy, I do not feel guilty about that because if they want me to be a great employee, I need to have great mental health. And so I will do that. Or going to the doctor. If you want me to physically be able to go to work, I need to be able to go to the doctor. I I am all about individualized mental health and wellness right now. That's that's a big thing for me. I ended our chat with an ask, an ask for all of you out there. I asked Deanna what her advice would be for people considering moving abroad. Some sort of advice or encouragement for other women living or traveling abroad. If you get the opportunity to live abroad, take it. There is so much more than the city, town, state, or even country that you are currently living in that will broaden your entire life. And I would argue you don't really know fully what you're capable of or what is possible for you until you live truly outside of your comfort zone. That's when you're going to be stretched. That's when you can rise to the occasion And then also don't expect it to be easy. Sometimes it can be if you're like, if you got it like that, but it's going to be hard just from either a financial or emotional, you know, or social standpoint, it's going to be hard. It's going to be shocking. It's going to be different. Do it anyway, because I I, I guarantee you who you become and, and just who you'll meet and just the things you'll be able to do with your one life that you're given you're not going to want to change that for the world. So for moms, especially if you have kids, you don't have to use that as your reason of why you can't go. I left the States with our daughter before she turned two. Like they're, they will be okay. They grow and thrive also in that experience because they don't know anything better. And so you're setting them up to already know that there is so much more out there than where they were born. And so that's just going to be amazing for you. Again, it's going to be hard. It's so worth it. I would not ever change the fact that I moved to Hong Kong, like ever. I don't know when I'm going back to the States, to be honest, unless it's like vacation. But even that, you know. I love that story. So if you 
resonated with this story, if you loved hearing about Deanna, please, please, please follow her on all of her social media handles. I am at like jeans pretty much everywhere. Cause my last name is denim. And so it's like denim, like jeans, get it? Like, like jeans. So yeah, I'm like jeans on Instagram. My website is at like jeans.com or denim.com. And then my podcast loose change is on all major uh, podcast platforms. So Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Podcaster, Google Podcasts, all the things. It's on like eight different platforms right now. And so yeah, you can find me all over the place. I was actually a guest on her podcast, Loose Change. So if you haven't heard her podcast before, definitely check out how to podcast when you don't know how to podcast. We had a really great time and a really interesting conversation. And also, please share this episode with someone you think would really be interested. Someone who is possibly thinking about moving to Hong Kong. Someone who dislikes good stories. Someone who's interested in just hearing a different perspective about living abroad. Also, if you like the podcast, please be sure to subscribe. Rate this podcast five stars on Apple Podcasts. Leave review on whatever platform you're listening on. And of course, share, 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 share across all of your social media platforms or just email someone and say, hey, this is a cool podcast. You should check it out. If you're interested in starting a podcast, I highly recommend checking out the Podcasting 101 course that is held by Frequency Media which is owned by my dear friend, Michelle Cody, who was truly instrumental in helping me get this podcast off the ground. All of that information will be in the show notes. And if you need music or beats for your YouTube channel, your Instagram, your mixtape that's dropping as soon as coronavirus is over, whatever, Definitely check out my brother, Zachary Higgs, who actually created the theme music for this podcast. I'll leave all of his information in the show notes. All right. See you guys next week. On the next episode of Flourish and the Foreign. I just naturally wanted to learn more about their culture. And in learning more about Noongar indigenous culture... I had a desire to learn more about my own Nigerian culture and before pre-colonization, like what were my ancestors doing before the missionaries came? What was their connection to the land then, you know? We, if you really dig deep, you realize that African culture is deeply connected as a spiritual thing. <laughs> it's not like something you can read in books. It's something that, that you, you learn from the land. And I saw that in Aboriginal um, Australian culture as well. 